Psalm 97. And you've noticed by now maybe that there are lots of similarity in the Psalms that are in this section or in this collection of Psalms, Psalm 93 through 100, and, and Psalm 97 is no, uh, is no exception. We'll start reading in verse 1 of Psalm 97. It says, The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad thereof, Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw it, I'm sorry, the earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare His righteousness and all the people see His glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images that boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all ye gods. Zion heard and was glad and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of Thy judgments, O Lord. For Thou, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted above all gods. Ye that love the Lord hate evil He preserveth the souls of His saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. And so Psalm 97 begins and ends with really the same same note, the the same tone here. And that is, rejoice in the Lord. Now, as we go through the psalm, you'll see there are various things it's, uh, uh, that, it's, that, that the, the writer is going to point out. But it's, it's really the theme of the psalm is, is rejoice in the God who reigns. So this whole psalm is looking at different aspects of or different ways that we ought to respond to the reality that Jehovah reigns. Now, we're just thinking theologically about the category of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. He is ruling over heaven and earth and the armies of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? He's in the heavens doing whatsoever he pleases. And what the psalm, particularly Psalm 97, and, and, and we've seen this, as we'll see in a minute, through several of these psalms, what the psalm does for us, Psalm 97, is it tells us that the doctrine of God's sovereignty or the fact that God is reigning right now in the world should not just simply be a fact that you collect in your mind about who God is, but it should be something that makes you to rejoice. It's something we ought to rejoice in. And we're going to see there, there are other aspects of our response, but... Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns or the Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of the isles be glad thereof. And so we see right out of the bat. And I think verse one in Psalm 97 is kind of the theme verse. He's letting us know what he's going to be talking about. And so right off the bat, he's saying the Lord reigns and since the Lord reigns, this is reason for the whole earth to rejoice. 
This is reason for the multitude of the isles to be glad. That's just those are parallels. It's simply saying the same thing that if you understand, if you know that God Almighty rules and reigns in heaven and earth and you've been brought to know him, then you have reason to rejoice. Now, this is something that we ought to keep in mind whenever we try to think about passages that encourage us to rejoice in all things. That whenever we think about passages that we ought to give thanks in all things. Um, this foundational reality for the Christian, what we know about God, this foundational reality really is the basis for our joy. We know who God is. We know what God's like. And we know that our God reigns. Very, very simple as far as understanding what I'm saying and the content of it. But a very firm foundation for hope and joy and rejoicing in life. So this is a reoccurring theme in this section. You'll, you'll notice in Psalm 93 verse 1, the Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also established that it cannot be moved. Psalm 96 verses 10 and 11. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Yeah, and it's this extolling, this, this, this whole section, Psalm 93 through 100, is, is, uh, uh, is not like the, the sections that we've looked at in the sense that these aren't really prayers where the psalmist is asking God for something. This, these are psalms where the psalmist is just telling you and rejoicing in who God is and what God is like. These are psalms of worship. These are not supplications. He is lifting the Lord up. He is exalting in the Lord. And every now and then, and we'll see that in Psalm 97, he'll give a little bit of an application that we ought to be thinking about on the basis of what he's thought, uh, what he's laid out about the Lord. But these are primarily meditations about who God is and what God's like. And he is constantly coming back to this reality that the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Rejoice because He reigns. The earth is established because He reigns. Psalm 99. The Lord, this is verse 1. The, the Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. Again, it's, it's rejoicing, extolling in the reality of God's reign, His sovereignty. And so, as we said earlier, the reality of God's sovereignty, if it's properly understood and embraced, will bring comfort and rejoicing to the hearts of God's people. Now, notice I said both of those. It needs to be understood properly, but it also needs to be embraced. You can understand it without embracing it. We embrace the reality of God's sovereignty as we learn to accept what God has allowed. And we learn to look by faith and interpret by faith the things that we see by our, with our eyes, the physical world, the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Um, there are other, other ways that people try to get to this rejoicing and get to this comfort. There are some who um, 
limit God's sovereignty in an attempt to try to to remove him uh, from being the author of sin, to make sure that no one's charging him with sin. Well, an accurate understanding of Scripture, particularly passages like James 1.13, would not lead anybody to think that God is the author of sin. Okay? The passage clearly says God does not tempt anyone with sin, neither can he. Okay? In him is light, there is no darkness, there's no variable or shadow of turning with him. He's the giver of good things, so forth and so on. But if we understand God's sovereignty from a biblical perspective, we will understand that God is reigning over. He is sovereign over sin and the sinner. And God is overriding the sinful plans of humanity for his for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. So the Lord reigns and primarily he reigns to put his glory on display as he lavishes his people with kindness. We're thinking about Romans 8:28, those kinds of passages there. And so this sovereign rule, sovereign reign of God is 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 one that leads to Rejoicing. As a matter of fact, uh, if you look in Revelation 19, you find that this is a this is a matter of rejoicing and a matter of worship, even in this heavenly scene here in Revelation 19. Um, In verse 5, it says, And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. What are they saying? They're saying the Lord reigns. And so we should rejoice in that. The Lord is reigning. The, the earth should be glad. Of course, in this heavenly scene, as they're called to praise the Lord, they're praising God because He is omnipotent. That is, He is all-powerful and He is reigning. And His reign really does secure the salvation of His people and the good of His people. So that brothers and sisters, one of these days, we will find ourselves in the same uh, uh, chanting, the same chorus here as far as Alleluia, the Lord omnipotent reigneth in heaven. Whenever we've um, passed through this life and we have an understanding that we do not yet have, but the reality is we don't have to wait until then to find comfort, to find joy, and to have our hearts lifted up in praise knowing that by faith, even though we don't know all the details of it, by faith, our God is reigning over the earth, working all these things together for our good and for His glory. So that's how the psalm starts out. I think this is what's setting the tone for the rest of the psalm. So it's rejoice in the God who reigns. Rejoice in the God who reigns. Secondly, we see in verses 2 through 5, we ought to stand in awe of the God who reigns. 
Okay? Not only is he one to be rejoiced in, as far as his sovereignty, we ought to rejoice in that, but we also ought to stand in awe of a God who is reigning, who is sovereign over the earth. Look at the passage in verse 2. Clouds and darkness are round about him. So we see right away we're looking at imagery. We need to figure out what this imagery is, is what the significance is here. We won't know what's being said. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, the whole earth. I'm sorry, the Lord of the whole earth. And so this is a call to stand in awe. It's, it's really alluding back to several, several instances in Scripture. Number one, it's pointing back to whenever God met with His people on Mount Sinai. Look in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 16. Exodus 19, verse 16, it says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount, and Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of the furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Okay, so here's this picture of God coming to His people in a, in a visible way on Mount Sinai to, to, to speak to them. And they trembled. Right? God's presence is made manifest through the smoke and through the fire and through the thunderings and through the quaking. And it says in, in verse 19, as they, as they saw what was happening, as they heard the, the sound of the trumpet, they, they were quaking, trembling. They were, they were standing in awe. They were brought face to face with the God of heaven and earth who is, by very definition, who is awesome. Meaning, when you stand before His presence, you stand in awe. It's a fearful thing. It's not casual. It's not comfortable. And so in Psalm 97, when it talks about these thick clouds and this darkness and the lightnings and the thunderings and so forth and so on, it's, it's talking about standing in awe of this God who reigns, of this God who rules. Exodus 24 would give a similar, similar language here, a similar description. In Exodus 24, verse 15, it says, and Moses went up to the mount and a cloud covered the mount and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire 
on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got himself into the mount. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. Again, the imagery there is the same as what's being alluded to in Psalm 97. The children of Israel are looking at the top of this mount. The Lord had descended upon it like a cloud. Um, sometimes we can try to, I mean, it can get kind of confusing trying to put all this stuff together. Was it a dark cloud or was it a consuming fire? Or was it lightnings and thunders? What was it? And the, the answer is it was all of that. It was all of it. And so the only thing they could do was just stand in awe and tremble and say, you go, Moses, not us. They were horrified. Because they, they had no point of reference for a God like this. We get into verse 3. We have some more in, in, in Psalm 97. Verse 3, he's a, it says, A fire goes before him and burneth up his enemies round about. Fire goes before him. Hebrews 12.29 says that, that our God is a consuming fire. Okay, we ought to stand in awe of that. This is not a... This is not an old grandpa who's begging people to behave. This is a consuming fire. Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so again, the picture that's being painted here is of a God who reigns. We ought to rejoice in the fact that He reigns, but we also ought to stand in awe of the God who reigns. Verse 5 talks about the, the, the mountains melting in, in Psalm 97. It talks about the mountains, uh, the hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. Uh, this is language that's used in other places. Uh, Nahum 1 3 um, says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind, and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at Him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at His presence, yea, the world, and all that dwell therein." Again, this is used in the same sense that the people that Nahum was writing to were to stand in awe. Okay, this is the God who is, he might be slow to anger, but whenever his patience is up, it's bad news. Okay, the, the mountains quake, the hills melt. That is the most stable thing on the planet that you can think of. Okay, you can move an awful lot but you're going to need some heavy equipment to do anything to a mountain, right? It melts at the presence of the Lord. It's like it wasn't even there. It's like a candle that just runs. It's pliable in His hands. We ought to stand in awe of a God like that. We ought to stand in awe of a God who reigns and who has command over all these things so that He just simply speaks and they obey. So we ought to rejoice in the God who reigns. We ought to stand in awe of the God who reigns. 
Number three, verses six through nine, is a call to worship the God who reigns. Call to worship the God who reigns. Verse six, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images and boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because thy judgments, O Lord. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted above all gods. So this section begins in verse 6 by just simply saying that the Lord has, has, has put His glory on full display. Okay, the heavens declare His righteousness and all the people see His glory. It reminds us of Psalm 19. It talks about the glory of the Lord being revealed in the heavens, that it's not hidden from anyone, that there's no language where this cannot be seen. Or maybe Romans 1, where it talks about the wrath of God that's revealed against all unrighteousness because of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and that the things of God are clearly seen. The glory of God, the fact that there's a powerful God is clearly seen in creation. But fallen humanity has distorted that. And rather than worshiping the Creator, is, 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 is uh, uh, more inclined to worship created things. Now, worship has been a topic we've been thinking about for several weeks now in the morning and on Wednesday nights. And so, again, when we think about worship, it's, it's extolling the worth of something. It's putting the value of something on display. We could even say that worship is an investment. Okay, you're investing in a particular thing because I'm hoping that it's going to pay dividends. I'm hoping that it's going to pay what I'm uh, uh, that it's that I'm going to get what I'm wanting out of it. Okay, so what do we mean by that? Well, we come and we we rejoice in the Lord. We worship the Lord right, because we want to be in His presence. And as we come and and we seek to have fellowship with Him, and as we come to to, to offer up acceptable worship to Him, we do that. We make that investment, as it were, because we're hoping the Lord is going to bless us by communing with us as we come together. By, by blessing us with uh, knowing and, and, and um, uh, experiencing the blessing of His presence. The fact that He's with us. Well, the same thing goes for all the other idols that we could try to invest in, all the things that would tempt us, that would draw us away, that we would try to put our time and efforts into, all those broken cisterns from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, that we think are going to hold water, but they really don't. So he says, the heavens declare His righteousness and the people see His glory. But verse 7, confounded, that is just disappointed, be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all you gods. See, we can't turn away from the Lord without turning to idolatry. That's the way that works. Jeremiah says that in Jeremiah 2.13. They've turned away from the living God. Right? They've dug out wells that won't hold water. And so what exactly does this mean specifically in the context of this psalm? Well, whenever we see 
verse 8, Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. Um, idolatry occurs, at least one of the first things that need, that has to happen, one of the things that's always happening as we turn to idols is that we must first ignore the Word of God before we embrace an idol. I'm not even, at this point, the statement I'm about to make, I'm not even talking about direct statements, but Scripture is full of commands to embrace God and to turn from idols. Scripture is full of scenarios as far as narratives as to how idols tripped God's people up again and again and again and again. Scripture is crystal clear, whether we're talking about Old Testament or New Testament. That if you ignore the word of the Lord and you follow after vain idols, your life will end in misery. Scripture is clear about this. And the reason that I say that is just to simply reinforce the point. You can't be an idolater without ignoring God's word. Those two go hand in hand. And so the, 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 the opposite of this, we're thinking about worshiping the God who reigns. Well, how do you worship him? At least in this context, how do you how do you not go after idols? Well, number one, you listen to what he says. You listen to what he says. Number two, you rejoice in what he says. If you're rejoicing in the sovereign God, you're rejoicing in his words. You see that in verse eight, Zion heard and was glad and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. Now, the word for judgments there is just talking about uh, the daughters of Judah or Zion. Now, we've talked about this in previous Psalms, but Zion is a reference to the city of God, the kingdom of God, where God's presence is. The daughters of Judah, thinking about God's people. Okay, God's church says they rejoiced because of thy judgments. That is his execution of justice. God reigns and he's a just God and he does what's right. And so we rejoice in this. There's really a twofold way to understand it. Number one, God's judgments, that is his execution of justice here, is something that God does in a providential way. Now, God, man makes his plans, but God directs his steps. And we've seen a couple of times in the Psalms where talks about the wicked falling in a pit that they dig for the righteous and so forth and so on. But really the ultimate fulfillment of this rejoicing in God's execution of justice is what the righteous will do at the second coming of Christ when when the ungodly are brought to justice and unrighteousness will cease. Okay, that's what's being said here. They were glad. They rejoiced. Because of thy judgments. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted above all gods. So the Lord is reigning. He's ruling. He is sovereignly bringing about His will. It's something for us to rejoice in. It's something for us to stand in awe of. It's a reason for us to worship. And then lastly... Verses 10 through 12. It's a call to trust the God who reigns. Okay, so we want to rejoice in Him. We want to uh, 
stand in awe of Him. We want to worship Him. And perhaps trust is part of that worship, but we're called to trust. Trust the God who, who reigns. Verse 10, Ye that love the Lord, hate evil. He preserveth the souls of His saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. So this is one of those times in this collection of Psalms where we get a, we get an application point. Ye that love the Lord, hate evil. Hate evil. Now, if you love what God loves, then you'll hate what God hates. And we know that naturally speaking, we're thinking about the whole process of sanctification. None of us could stand up today and say, you know, I, I, I can, I can bear witness that I, I, I hate everything evil that God hates. But the truth about every single born again believer is that God is progressively taking us there. You're, you're beginning to hate evil more and more, uh, as you love righteousness more and more. And so part of what it's going to mean for you to learn to hate evil is for you to rejoice in what the Lord has said. That is, for you to rejoice in the Word of the Lord, the sanctifying work of Scripture. Look in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Verse 104, Psalm 119, verse 104. Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Through thy precepts I get understanding. I'm able to see things as they are. You know, the only reason that we're ever carried away by temptation is because our understanding is darkened. We have a misperception of reality. We see the bait, but we don't see the hook. Okay. The psalmist here says, it's only through thy word that I get understanding. And because of that, I hate every evil way. Those who hate evil will love righteousness. And the reason that they hate evil is because they love righteousness. Look at Psalm 119, um, verse 163. 119, 163. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. So, in one sense, we think, okay, those who love the Lord hate evil. Well, that's an easy thing to say. That's a hard thing to do. If we're honest with ourselves. And the way that we do that is by growing in our love for the Word, so that Christ through the Spirit continues to wash us, to bathe our minds, to renew our minds, to cleanse our hearts, so that while we grow in our love for God and for righteousness, we also grow in our hatred for evil and every evil thing that is an abomination to the Lord. Verse 10, ye that love the Lord hate evil. 
He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Okay, so what is what does this mean? Second part of verse 10. It means you can trust the Lord. It means you can trust God. You know, every time we embrace evil, we forsake the Lord. Another way of saying that is every time we embrace evil, we trust something or someone more than God. That's the way that works every time. Because when we embrace evil, we're hoping to get something out of that. We're thinking it's an avenue to something. And the psalmist in Psalm 97 says, if you love God, hate evil, God will preserve His saints. He will keep you from the hand of the wicked or He will deliver you from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. That is, the Lord gives light, the Lord gives gladness to those that love Him and trust Him. These are things that the Lord sows and that we reap. You can trust the Lord. And then the psalm ends where it begins. Rejoice in the Lord, verse 12, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. And so we're called to rejoice in the God who reigns. We're called to stand in awe of the God who reigns, to worship the God who reigns, and to trust the God who reigns. May God bless us to be able to walk out Psalm 97. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in Your sovereignty. We do rejoice in the fact that You are ruling and reigning right now. And yet, Father, we have to confess that there are so many areas in our life where we just struggle to, uh, to see this, to apply this. And so we pray for Your help. We pray that You would um, bless us not only to have an accurate understanding of your sovereignty, but that we would embrace that understanding. Pray that we would stand in awe of you, that it would move us to worship you, and that it would move us to trust you more and more in our day-to-day lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.